Revelation chapter number 2 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's read once more verse number 4. The Bible says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the honor and the privilege it is to meet together with these folks in your house. Lord, we are conscious that there are many places in this world right now where for folks to do what we're doing tonight, they're having to risk their life and their liberty. And they're having to break the law of that land. Lord, we just thank You and praise Your name that we're still in a place where we can meet and worship. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. Lord, we thank You that we can have confidence that we have Your Word. Lord, I pray for each and every person that is within this place, myself included, myself more than anyone, Lord, that You would accomplish in us the things which are needful, that You would convict us and convince us of areas of our life that are maybe not aligned with You in the way that they should be. Father, help us to be willing to repent and return to that first love wherewith you loved us and taught us to love you. Father, we thank you for all that you have done that you will do. Do every bit of it in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. And we do ask these things in his name. Amen. Now, in Revelation chapter number 2, we have the first of a series of letters, seven different letters written to seven different churches. And I am very conscious of the prophetic import and impact that these seven letters do have. And I am aware that uh, as you review the history of Western Christianity, that certainly these uh, seven churches can represent to us seven different time periods. And uh, the spiritual temperature, as it were, of professing Christendom in those particular time periods. But tonight I don't want us to necessarily focus on the prophetic import of this passage that's before us. For you see, I'm also keenly aware that though these seven churches represent in many ways seven different time periods, beginning with the apostolic church of Ephesus, leading down to the lukewarm church of Laodicea that I believe we are presently in at this time, uh, even though it does have those truths, I'm also aware that these are seven literal churches that John was commanded to write these letters to, and, and God inspired John, gave him the words that he was to pin down. 
And I'm aware that as I look through these seven churches, I find very important practical truths that pertain to Wall Ridge Baptist Church. I mean, listen, what good is it if I'm not going to preach to Wall Ridge Baptist Church tonight? What good is it to preach to the church down the road or to preach to the church uh, across the county? I believe when I read this passage of Scripture, I see a lot of qualities that are true of our church. And you say, well, what do you mean by true of our church? True of our church people. Could I put it that way? Because, you see, a church is nothing but a group of uh, local believers that have been baptized, that are saved and have been baptized and have congregated together and joined in fellowship to carry out the Great Commission. These aren't qualities about the drywall and, and, and the studs and the carpet and the brick. These are qualities about us, you and me. And so I want us to take a few moments tonight. I want you to very seriously enter into a mindset of self-examination, or could we say self-scriptural examination, as we allow God to reveal some things about our spiritual condition and about the way that our relationship is with Him. Ephesus was a uh, city located in uh, Asia Minor. It was a very important city. I thought this was interesting as I studied. It was an important city in a lot of different ways, religiously and and socially. But it was an important city politically. I, I, I thought this was very interesting. Ephesus was known as a free city. At some time in Ephesus's history... Uh, the officials or the city itself had done something to get in the good graces of the Roman Empire. And if you were a citizen of Ephesus, you were considered to be a free man that could not be enslaved. It was a city where they were allowed to self-govern. It was a city where Roman soldiers would not be garrisoned and the economy would be turned loose to be able to thrive and to produce. And I thought, you know, how, how, what a picture it is of you and I. Uh, There was a time when we were in bondage, was there not? There was a time when we owed a debt. There was a time when we had a cruel master. There's no question about it. Before you got saved, you had a cruel master. But then there was one that went on our behalf and paid our sin debt, redeemed us, and we have a freedom now in Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, Unless we allow him to, Satan can't garrison any of his troops in our life. And He can have no hold over us. God's given us liberty. And I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I'm about to preach my my Bible study lesson from Monday night. But uh, we have the liberty of self-rule. Now, the reason we have the liberty of self-rule is that we might submit to the Savior's rule. But it's not real liberty except it's the liberty to choose. That's one of the things this world misses. This world thinks of of liberty as the ability to do anything that you like. But that's not God's definition of liberty. In fact, God's definition of liberty is, is sort of paradoxical to that because God's definition of liberty is the ability to choose who you're going to serve and to choose to serve the right master. It's not a life devoid of law, and it's not a life of lawlessness, but rather it's the ability to choose. The lost person, he doesn't get to choose. Now, he may choose whether to accept or reject Christ, but outside of that decision, he has no choice. He is a slave in bondage to sin. By the same token, this world defines bondage as uh, someone hindering you from doing everything that you'd like to do. And yet God's definition of bondage is typified with the sinner that does everything that he wants to do, but he has no control over his want to. 
You see, true liberty is the liberty to choose Jesus Christ and to do it because you're really choosing Him, not because you feel obligated or feel bound to serve Him, but you're serving Him out of love. If the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. So in a lot of ways, when I see Ephesus, I see a picture of you and I. I I see a, a city that was in bondage but now has been freed and has been given a liberty. And don't you know that if, uh, and, and we should have this experience, but don't you know that if we were Ephesians, and if we had lived during that time, don't you know that we would have a lot of love for the folks that had set us free? And the same thing should be true of us as believers. We ought to have a, a, an absolute infatuation with the person that has set us free from our chains of bondage. And there was a time for the Ephesians, not only politically or socially or religiously, but when spiritually they did have an infatuation and a love for the person that had set them free. As I read through the book of Ephesians in in preparation for this message tonight, and you say, well, you're preaching out of Revelations. Well, I know, but I wanted to find out about the Ephesians. And you see, Paul would have written his letter uh, some 40 years probably before John ever recorded on the Isle of Patmos these truths to the Ephesians. So Paul gives us a glimpse into the church at Ephesus in the beginning. And one of the constant things that Paul reminds them of over and over again, you'll find it all through the book of Ephesians. He'll talk about where they were in time past. And he'll exhort them to remember and to consider who and what they were. Wherefore, in time past, ye were Gentiles, alienated from God. In time past, you were in darkness, but now you've been brought into the light. And certainly the Ephesians had a testimony where they could say, there is one that has brought us out of darkness and into the light. And I believe that's true of those of us that know Christ as well. And as you read the book of Ephesians, we're going to say or read this uh, passage in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to talk a lot about verse number 4. But before we get there, and I've kind of divided it up in four different categories, I want to talk to you tonight first off about what was right at the church of Ephesus. Then I want to talk to you about what was wrong at the church of Ephesus. And then I want to take a moment and talk to you about what was required of the church of Ephesus. And if God will give us enough time to tonight, uh, then I want to talk to you about what was risked at the church of Ephesus. It's easy sometimes to have a real judgmental spirit about Bible characters, isn't it? I mean, we'd all do it differently, wouldn't we? We'd all, if it had been us, we wouldn't have smoked the rock. We wouldn't have been on the balcony with David. Uh, if it had been us, you know, we, we wouldn't have uh, uh, intruded on the priesthood like Saul did. Uh, if it had been you and me, we wouldn't have uh, took our eyes off Jesus like uh, Peter did. We wouldn't have uh, took out the sword and smoked Malchus's ear. We wouldn't have done any of those things, you know, because we're so enlightened. But the truth is, when you read this passage, you hear more good about the church at Ephesus than you hear bad about the church at Ephesus. You hear more things positive about what was going on in this local church than you heard negative. And I think it's important that we notice that. Let me tell you why. We live in a very extreme mentality world and a very polarized world. We have this mentality uh, where everything's either all good or it's all bad. Now, I'm not saying that we live in a gray area, but can I say that you can have a lot of things right in your life and there can still be some things that are wrong. Uh, There can be a lot of things that are good about your life and there can still be some bad things. And as a church, we can do a lot of things right, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some things that we still need to get right. 
See, when I look at the church at Ephesus, I notice four things in particular. Admirable things. Things that I believe every church ought to have. Would you notice them with me? Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, "...unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks." Now, some of you are saying, "Whoa, wait a minute, preacher. I, I, you, you've, you've left me. I, I don't understand what that's talking about. Well, that's reflecting back to some statements that are made in chapter number one. You see, John sees the Son of God, and he sees him, and, and uh, you know, he sees him as flaming. He sees uh, uh, all these uh, various precious stones and things of that sort. And listen to what it says. The Bible says that John saw the Lord walking in the midst of golden candlesticks, and he had seven stars in his right hand. And the Lord explains to John what that means. Look with me in chapter number 1, verse number 12. The Bible says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. We know who He is. He's Jesus. Clothed with a garment uh, down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. We know what that is, don't we? And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery, verse 20, of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now you say, preacher, now why did we read all that? What are you trying to drive home? Well, I want to say that the first thing that this church had was the presence of Christ in the midst of it. Now, you'll find that in each of these letters written to these seven churches, there are some very unique things to each of the letters. And uh, as you read through them, you'll find that the Son of God, he, He introduces Himself with a different title for every church. And all of those titles are pertinent to that particular church. Each of them, he gives a uh, different warning to each and every one of them, and a different exhortation to each and every one of them, a different promise to each and every one of them, that are very pertinent to those particular churches. And of the church of Ephesus, and he didn't do this with any of the rest of the churches, he made a particular point to say, I am in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Christ was denoting his presence to this church. Can I say to you that God is so gracious? Now listen now, or you won't agree with it. God is so gracious that there's times He blesses us with His presence when everything ain't right. There's times when there's things that are out of kilter and out of order and something is wrong in our life, and the Lord still blesses us with His presence. I'd venture so far as to say that if God was waiting on us to get worthy of His presence, He wouldn't nary visit any of His churches. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes he visits. And I think, you know, we have a tendency to think sometimes that if we have a good service, if there's shouting, if there's folks in the altar, well, then everything must be all right in a church. But that's not necessarily so. 
They had the presence of God. I want you to notice the second thing. Look what he begins to say to them. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. He mentions his presence amongst them, but he mentions their productivity. He says, I know your works, and he is speaking of their private life, uh, their testimony, and he speaks of their labor, speaking of the things that they're doing in serving him, and speaks of their patience, their steadfastness in serving him, and he says, listen, I know that you're serving me. I think everybody ought to serve God in some capacity. And I think that capacity ought not be determined by our willingness or apathy. I think it ought to only be determined by things like God's sovereign divine will, where He places us, uh, maybe health restraints that we might have that God has led us into. There are times that we uh, uh, that the Lord leadeth us beside still waters and maketh us to lie down in green pastures. I'm aware of that. But I believe everybody ought to be doing everything they can for Jesus Christ because He did everything for us. Well, I'd all be serving God. It's a good thing to serve God. It's not a bad thing. You hear some folks talking, they, they'd talk like he was the worst boss ever to have. You'd hear some folks talking, and they'd talk like serving the Lord is the most miserable thing that they've ever done. But I'm here to tell you, as someone that labors his whole life in it, uh, that it's a blessed and joyous thing to serve God. You'll get no greater thrill than serving Him. And Ephesus was a church that knew what it was to serve God. This was a busy church. I mean, this wasn't the kind of church where you'd go in, you'd have to brush your way through cobwebs to find your way to the pew. This wasn't the kind of church where you'd come in, have to take a few pulses to find out if anybody's even still alive in the place. This was a busy place that was serving God. But listen, you know, sometimes you can even serve God and things not be right in your life. I want to say we see their productivity spoken of. Look at the next thing. This is going to hit us hard now, but look. Verse number 2, look at the next phrase. It says, And how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. He mentions their purity. I believe as a church we ought to have purity. I believe we ought to have purity. You say, what do you mean? Well, I notice two different types of purity that he speaks of. And the first is morally pure. Now, and when I use the term morally, I don't necessarily mean the uh, Satan's counterfeit for spirituality. I know I've talked about that quite a bit. But I mean, as it relates to them behaving themselves. It says, I know that thou canst not bear them that are evil. I believe as a church we ought to try to maintain purity. I think one of the great lost, uh, uh, the great lost things that the church used to do that we ought to be doing more of is church discipline. Amen. Don't get nervous. I ain't got none of you in mind. But I'm just saying, there's a biblical precedent for it. And there's a biblical purpose for it. We ought to maintain a purity. I, I, I think it'd be right if every one of us... Now, the first thing we need to think before we do anything is, how's this going to reflect on Jesus Christ? But the second thing we ought to think is, how's it going to reflect on my church? That's not wrong to think. Now, that ought not be the primary. How it's going to reflect on Jesus Christ ought to be the primary. But I believe as a church, we ought to maintain purity. I believe we ought to live right. I believe if folks ain't going to live right that are going to be a part of our church, they at least ought to have to feel like they need to hide it. Amen? The only thing worse than someone living in sin is someone living openly in sin. Because that tells you that they've lost all respect for the house of God and the Word of God and the man of God and the church of God. And they think that everybody ought to be all right with the way that they're living. But I think as a church, we ought to maintain purity. We ought to live right. We ought to act right. We ought to do right to each other. I believe we ought to maintain a moral purity. It ought to be that we're a shining light. 
It ought to be that we are to some degree above reproach. I understand that it's the will of God for us to be morally pure. You say, how do you know that? Because one of these days, Jesus Christ is going to present us spotless and blameless, the book of Ephesians says. That's His will for us. Now, we won't ever get there through the energy of our own ability, but we ought to be like Paul trying to apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. You see, I see that morally uh, pure is spoken of, but then notice this, doctrinally pure is spoken of. It says, Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars. I believe as a church we ought to be doctrinally pure. I told you this was going to hurt, so don't look at me like you weren't expecting it. We ought to be doctrinally pure. We ought to know what we believe. We ought to stand for what we believe. We ought to expect those. And listen, I mean, I, I want everybody to have their own convictions. I don't expect everyone to, uh, you know, take quizzes that I hand out to them so I can make sure you believe like I do. I'm not talking about that nonsense. But I'm simply saying that we as a church ought to strive to be doctrinally, doctrinally pure and doctrinally correct in everything that we do. We ought to strive for it. It ought to be a goal of ours to believe right and to share those beliefs with others. We live in a day where doctrine is dismissed. People don't want to talk about doctrine. Afraid you're going to upset someone. But shoot, they'll talk about UT football and it upsets plenty of folks. They'll talk about politics and that upsets plenty of folks. But don't talk about doctrine now or we'll have a, a knockdown drag out in the church. God help us when we get to the place that we're ashamed to, to believe like God believes. Well, never be ashamed to believe like God believes. If we stand with the Word of God, then we're standing with how God believes. I was talking to someone the other day. They was getting all tore up over something that I had said. And they were talking about my judgmental attitude and my judgmental spirit. And listen to me. The next time that someone tells you you're being too judgmental as a Christian, you just go through the Bible and show them every single verse that has the word judgment or judge in it. 99.9% of them are in a positive context. As believers, our attitude ought to be one of skepticism, uh, not of mean-spiritedness. I'm not talking about that. But, beloved, try, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits and see whether they be of God. That's our Christian position is one of skepticism and one of criticism, not mean-spiritedness. But you know what it means to be, cri uh, to be critical, don't you? In fact, it's critical to be critical. Did you get that? Isn't it funny how we can talk about critical care unit and how important the critical care unit is down at the hospital? Or we'll be talking about something so vital and so important, we'll say, it's critical. And then by the same token, you use the term critical as an adjective uh, describing somebody, and you might as well accust them. The reality is we ought to have a spirit of skepticism and, and, and criticism, not mean-spiritedness, not haughtiness, not high-mindedness, but we ought to have an attitude of, looking at everything through squinted eyes and through a suspicious notion and asking ourselves, does that line up to the Word of God? We ought to be doctrinally pure. We are commanded to be doctrinally pure. The Bible says we're to come out from among them and touch not the unclean thing. You say, preacher, what's that talking about in the book of 1 Corinthians? It's talking about doctrine. It's talking about false teachers and false prophets. We better understand when a preacher won't preach against heresy and when a church won't listen to preaching against heresy, they are effectively taking the fence down from around the flock and making the people vulnerable to any uh, slight or wind of doctrine, any false teaching that may arise and could carry them away and lead them shipwreck as to what they believe. Uh, there's a reason that we send a lot of young people away to college and they walk away from it not believing anything anymore. 
We've taught them that they ought to be tolerant and accepting of every uh, mind frame and of every belief system that exists. And I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of belief systems that can shipwreck your faith if you're not careful. And we as a church ought to strive to be doctrinally pure. The church at Ephesus was a pure church. I want you to notice the fourth thing, and then we'll move on. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, And has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not faded. He speaks of their perseverance. Speaks of their purity. And by the way, a church can believe everything right and still be wrong. I know lots of churches that believe everything right, but there's still a carnality with the people that are a part of it. We can believe everything right and still be wrong. But then I want you to notice that we can serve God and be patient and persevere. We can have tough skin and still be wrong. I've heard some folks talk about it. Don't misunderstand me. Tough skin is a quality that Christians should learn to have. We ought to not fuss at each other as much. We ought not uh, to backbite, gossip about each other as much. We ought to learn to be kind one to another, as the Bible commands us to do, tender-hearted one to another. We ought to. But you'll hear some folks talk about it, and they'll talk about being tough-skinned as though it is the epitome and pinnacle of spirituality. Uh, some folks ain't spiritual. They just don't care what you think. You know? It's not that they're so spiritual. They just don't care what you think. I think it's a good thing to be willing to persevere when the going gets tough to keep going. We need faithfulness in this day that we live in, don't we? The psalmist cried out and said, Oh, Lord, oh, God, where is the faithful man? said, The faithful man ceaseth and fadeth away. Boy, it seems like we live in a day like that. Now, I'm not fussing at the Wednesday night crowd. You're here uh, for a reason. But I'm merely saying to you that faithfulness is something that's on short supply in this day that we live in. And it's something we ought to treasure and appreciate. It's easy to find people with talent. It's tough to find people with faithfulness. It's easy to find people with good personalities. It's tough to find people with faithfulness. It's easy to find people that are, uh, that are brilliant and ha- have a way with, with uh, teaching or handling the Word of God. It's tough to find faithfulness. Many times, great lives and great opportunities for Jesus Christ have been stifled by nothing more than pure old laziness, apathy, and a lack of faithfulness. We ought to be willing to be faithful. There's a lot of us, it'd be amazing what God could do with us if we get faithful. If we just make up our mind that uh, the house of God and the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the prayer closet of God and the Son of God are more important to us than anything else, it'd be amazing what God could do in our lives. This was a church that had faithfulness, man. I mean, when things got difficult, they just dug in. They didn't back up. They didn't fade away. They didn't fall to the wayside. The church at Ephesus said, hey, it doesn't matter what's coming down the line, I'm going to stick in there. But can I say to you that you can be faithful and still have some things in your life that aren't where they need to be. You see, I see all these things that are right with the church of Ephesus. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think God's criticizing them when He's pointing these things out. I don't think He's being negative towards the church of Ephesus. I think God is sincerely bragging on them and saying, I appreciate these things that are right about your church. But in verse number 4, we have an interesting word, nevertheless. Oh boy, that I tell you, man, that, that word ought to send chills down our spine. You know why? Because it's as if God is saying, even in spite... Of all that is right, there is still something wrong. Oh, that God could look down on us, that feel as though our life is being steered down a straight path, that feel as though things are going okay, that feel as though our relationship with God is where it needs to be, that God Almighty could look down from heaven and say, nevertheless. But the truth is, for most of us, if not all of us, God could look down and say, nevertheless. 
We want to focus on what's right. Listen now. You can feel good by focusing on what's right, but you can fix it by focusing on what's wrong. There's a lot of us, we'd love to stop there and say, yeah, let's just talk about everything that's right. God says, no, I hate to, but I've got to mention it. Nevertheless, he says, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. We see what was wrong with the church at Ephesus. In one simple phrase, thou hast left thy first love. Now, what does that mean? I thought about this. I spent some time. Sometimes it'd help us if we think about the things we take for granted in Scripture. There's things that when we read, we just assume we know what it means. And sometimes it'd do us good to just, just take a moment and think about it. And so I spent a little time thinking about it. But, you know, I found this, that when I spent that time thinking about it, I came to the same conclusion that everyone else did. I believe when it talks about their first love, I think it's talking about that state of passion and devotion that they had for Jesus Christ when they were just a young, budding church. He's talking about how it used to be. We all like to talk about how it used to be, don't we? Can I tell you that it could be how it used to be if we'd want it to be? It could be how it used to be if we'd want it to be and make it to be so. We find that this phrase denotes three different things, or I see these in it. I just want us to notice three things about this change that took place. Now, keep in mind, this church, everything seemed to be right. If you had looked at this church, this would have been the best church in town. I mean, this would have been the kind of church you would look at and say, hey, that's where I want to raise my family at. But we noticed that it was an invisible change, first off, that took place. Nothing is mentioned that is reflected in God's description of that church. Could I say to you that sometimes there can be something wrong that nobody knows about? And could I say that when you make this decision to leave your first love, before anybody else ever sees it, God sees it. And many times everything can look all right but you're still taking those steps away from the Lord. Can I ask you a simple question tonight? And I hope, you know, I, I ask you to look at this with a spirit of self-examination tonight, and I hope that you'll do that. Do you love Him as much or more as you ever have? Not as you always have, as you ever have. Could you honestly say before heaven tonight, I'm more devoted to Jesus Christ tonight than I have ever been? I love Him more tonight than I ever have. And when I say love, I don't mean a fuzzy feeling. The Bible says that we're uh, to love uh, in, in deed and in truth. Not just in word, but in deed and in truth. Could you really say that this evening? You see, this change that took place, it was on a level that no one else could notice. No one would have looked at the church at Ephesus and said, Oh, they're headed for trouble. They were still serving Their doctrine was still right. They were still faithful. God was still meeting with them. But there was a change that had taken place in their passion and devotion that was on a level that no one could perceive but God in heaven. Could I say to you that though no one else may perceive it, God in heaven does perceive it. Oh, what it would help us to just get honest with God. Just to get honest with God. To quit playing the games, all the foolishness, worrying about what everybody's going to think, and get honest with God. Because can I let you in on a secret? God already knows your spiritual condition. 
whether you admit it or confess it or repent of it or change it, God already knows where you're at spiritually. We'll get a lot further ahead if we'll just go ahead and learn to be honest with the Lord. We may be able to get away with it. Do you hear me? We may be able to get away with it. No one ever may notice, at least not for a while. But that doesn't mean that it's not affected our relationship with God. We see that this was an invisible change. But I want you to notice, secondly, that this was an incremental change. You know the reason that no one could tell? Because this was something that happened in degrees. You know, you don't have to step far to be stepping away. Let me give you an example. Let, let me give you... Dad, come up here. I'm going to have Dad help me. I don't ever do this, but I, I'm going to... The best way to borrow money from someone is to do it in front of a crowd. Amen. And they, they feel like they can't say no. Let's say Dad is the Lord. I know that's not a stretch, but... And here I am, and I'm close to Him, and my relationship with Him is good. And then I decide I'm going to walk and leave. And I come all the way over here and look at the distance that I've left Him. Look how far I am from Him. Let me ask you this, though. Let's say that here I am and I'm close to Him. And I just step this far. Have I not left Him just the same? I don't have to be all the way over there to have left Him. I don't have to be all the way across the room to have left Him. I I, I can just take a step away. And I've effectively left Him. Thank you, Dad. You see, this is an incremental thing that happens. The devil don't try to get you 30 years at a time. I've learned that. I tell young people that all the time, man. I tell young people that the devil does not try to get you to sign away 30 years of your life because he knows he'd never get you. But if he can just get you a day at a time. He don't try to get you to walk 10 miles away from the Lord. If he can just get you to take a step, then that next step will be easier. And the one that follows. You see, the problem is we hear messages like this and we think to ourselves, I'm not all that far away from him. And therein is the deception of Satan. We say, I'm not all that far from him. And yet you've walked away from him just the same. How much more will it take for you to take a few more steps? Something you'll find is that that pool gets stronger the further you get away from him. It's an incremental thing. I don't know how early it was in their spiritual condition that God sent this letter to them. I'm of the belief it was probably pretty early. I mean, they were probably still close enough to hear Him, close enough to sense His presence, close enough to to, to smell the scent that would waft off of His divine presence. And yet the Lord says, "You're, you're moving away. You're moving away. You're taking some steps. Some of us, if we would be honest, we would have to admit that we've taken some steps away over the past six months, year two years, three years, five, ten, however long it's been. Not as devoted as we once were. Not as in love with Jesus Christ as we used to be. We always look at the fellow that's a little further away and say, I'm not as bad as him. But you know the funny thing about that is what you'll do is you'll wind up following this fellow right here because he's your standard. And you'll follow and follow and follow and one day you'll stop and you'll see how far you've drifted away from the relationship you used to have with God. We notice that it's an incremental change, but I want to notice that it's an intentional change. You'll hear this verse misquoted a lot. People will say this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast lost thy first love. 
And that's how, you know, Hollywood thinks of things. You know, you, 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 you trip into love, you trip out of love, you're feeling it one minute, you don't feel it the next. Oh, I've lost it. But that's not what the Lord says. The Lord says you left your first love. We don't like to admit it. And our main goal may not be the destruction of our relationship with the Lord. But every sin that we commit, it's an act of our will. You choose something over Jesus Christ, doesn't matter what that is, you've made an idol out of it. doesn't matter what it is. Maybe your family. God loves the home. Let me say it, let me scream it from the mountains. God loves the home. But your home can be an idol. God has no issue with money. He paves the streets with gold. But your money can be an idol. Do you know that a lot of times our greatest idol is just our own opinion and our own definition of what we think God feels about our sin? There's lots of times that God shows us what our sin is and we say, no, Lord, I'll opt out of your definition. I like my definition a lot better. And that becomes an idol, and we have idolized ourselves. We've taken a humanistic approach to our relationship with the divine God. It doesn't take much, but every bit of it's intentional. Oh, you may not, you may not say it in your mind, and, and I think rarely we do. I think it's rare that we ever say, All right, Lord, I'm walking away from you. No, you see, we're paying attention to what we're walking towards not what we're walking away from. And that's the temptation of the world. That's what we have to get through our minds. It's what we have to teach our young people, is that you have to be careful, not just what you're walking away from, but what you're walking towards, because you don't walk towards something except you're walking away from something. And you may have, in your efforts to walk towards something that you wanted very badly, you may have taken some steps away in your relationship with God. I see this as an intentional change, but what does the Lord require of them? What does the Lord tell them to do? We, we've seen what's right. And those things were very right. And they ought to be in any church. And we see what is wrong. We see how that this slow change seems to have taken place. And it seems slight and it seems insignificant. But can I say it was, oh, can I say it was important enough for them to hear from heaven over it? Now listen, you may be here tonight. You may be thinking, it's not that big of a deal. But have you heard from heaven over it? Have you heard from heaven over it tonight? They may have said, oh, it's not that... Hey, we've just taken a step or two. But it was important enough for God to speak to them about it. Has God spoken to you tonight? I think that sounds pretty important, don't you? If it's important enough for God to speak to you, it ought to be important enough for us to speak to Him. If it's important enough for God to get your attention, then it's something that we ought to rectify and change in our lives. What did God expect of them? Notice the first word that is found in verse number 5. Remember. Remember. I told you a moment ago that that seems to be the theme through the book of Ephesians. Is always remember where you were. Remember where you were before God saved you. And I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of times, if we'll focus on remembering where we were before we got saved, we won't have to remember where we were after we got saved. I kind of think that we move away from remembering what we were before God saved us. And that's why we get in such a condition that God has to say, Remember from whence thou art fallen. Let's do an exercise. No cardio, don't get nervous. Let's do an exercise. Try to think back in your mind. 
the time when you believed you were closest to God. Maybe it was the, the few weeks after you got saved. That wouldn't be uncommon. It ought not to be that way, but that wouldn't be uncommon. I certainly wouldn't try to shame you over that. A lot of folks felt closest to the Lord right after they got saved. Maybe as a young person it was after a revival that you were in. Maybe it was after a vacation Bible school that you went to or a camp service or camp meeting that you went to. Maybe it was right after you got married and you felt the, the immense pressure of, of your domestic responsibilities and it drove you to a relationship with the Lord. Maybe it was right after you had kids and you looked into those precious eyes and thought, oh, if God doesn't help me to be what I need to be, I'll never be it. But some point in your life, I promise you, we don't forget those times. And if you'll be honest, you can think back to a time in your life where you could say, oh, I just felt so close. I felt like I could, if I kept walking, I'd just take flight into the air and walk right into the presence of God. Nothing was too much for the Lord to ask of me. Nothing was too great for Him to expect me to do. Oh, I remember what it was. The first thing he said is, I want you to think back to what it was like. Let me ask you something. Was there a time when we wouldn't have griped about the things we gripe about now? Was there a time when we wouldn't have griped about what we gripe about now in relation to what the Lord expects of us? Was there a time when we had more patience with our brothers and sisters in Christ? A time maybe when God's house didn't seem a burden. Was there a time that you can remember? It would serve you well to remember it tonight. First thing he said is, remember, remember. Think back to those times in your life. Notice the second thing that's required. He says, remember from whence thou art fallen. And what does it say? Repent. Let me ask you something. Is apathy something that requires repentance? Most of us... Now, be honest now. Maybe you're not this way. I'm convinced I'm probably the most carnal person that walks through those doors. I'm serious. But I know that me and my flesh, you know what I want to say sometimes when God's convicted me? I want to say, well, Lord, I'll do better. Is there anything wrong with that? No, you ought to say you'll do better. But there's a step that you're missing. Repentance. What does repentance mean? Well, the, the scholars tell us that repentance is a, is a 180 degree change of the mind. And I don't dispute with that. I, I think that's a very, very uh, avid definition. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But something I find that's interesting is that repentance and faith are always mentioned hand in hand. Now, most people will agree that faith is not an action, but rather an attitude of the heart. Is that not true? Most people would say faith is not an action, but it does produce actions. Faith is an attitude or a decision of the heart whereby we purposefully and deliberately and intelligently place our faith in God. And we choose to trust Him. I find that to also be true of repentance. Repentance is not the changing of your behavior. Repentance is the attitude in which you are convinced and acknowledge your sin in your behavior. And you're willing for God to change it in you. Now, we're going to talk here in a second about what you need to do. Uh, but let me just say that apathy requires repentance. If we're going to be right with God, not just, Lord, I'll do better, but to find ourselves either physically or spiritually on our face before God and to say, Lord, I sinned in that I walked away from you and I was wrong and I know that I'm wrong and, Lord, I have a desire for you to change that about me. And, Lord, whatever I need to do, I'll do. 
but you do what I can't do. We're to repent. And then notice the next thing that it says. It says, remember from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. We're to return. We're to return. We're to remember where we were at. We're to repent of our apathy and of our walking away, but we're to return and we're to get back in that place where we loved Him before. We're to do the right thing. Boy, you know, sometimes I've learned as a father in the short, 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 short time that I have been one that there is even now times when my son looks at me knowing he's done something wrong and tries to play me for the fool in acting as though he's not. There, he's little. He's itty-bitty. But I can see it in his intelligent little eyes. He's looking at me. And he's trying to play me for the fool. Is it really that hard, folks? Do the right thing. Return. Do that which you used to do. Do what God expects of you. Don't try to play God for the fool. Don't try to act as though you've not done anything wrong. If heaven has thundered and revealed to you, third, and think that you've stepped away, then repent and step back and get your heart where it needs to be. We see finally, and I'm just going to touch on these, we see what is risked. What is risked at the church of Ephesus? What happens if they don't? We could go a a step farther and talk about what is rewarded in uh, verse number 7, but I don't think we'll have time. Let's just look at verse 5. And I want you to notice two things that they were risking if they did not get right with the Lord. First off, what does he say? He says, or else, (laughs) or if that don't sound like a parent, I don't know what does. Or else, I will come unto thee quickly. Let me say the first thing they risked was the chastening of the Lord. What did he mean when he said, I will come unto thee quickly? Well, here in a moment, he's going to talk about some actions he would take. But could I just, could I just put it like I remember it growing up? I'm going to be home soon. That's what the Lord's saying. I will come. You, you know how I know? Because he says, quickly. Quickly. You know, we don't have to be far out of the will of God to be out of the will of God. And we don't have to be real disobedient to be disobedient. Therefore, we don't have to be real wrong for God to chase, chasten us to get us right. What does the Bible say in the book of 1 Peter? We've read this many times, but 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And listen, we need to understand that God's not just striving to get us better than subpar. God's not just trying to get the majority of our lives. On Calvary, He bought and paid for all of us. And He has a desire for all of us. And so even if we've just taken a step or two away, expect God in His love and chastening hand to come and visit you. We see the chastening of the Lord, but then notice finally, and I'm done, we see the extinguishing of their light. He says, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. I'm reminded of what John Wesley said. They asked Mr. Wesley one time, 
This was a man that would preach sometimes 40, 50 times a week. This was a man that whenever he got to be in his old age, you can read his, uh, his, uh, his journal, and uh, he had this one entry. He said, uh, did not wake up till 4.30 this morning. Feel laziness creeping in. <laughs> and, and, and that was John Wesley. John Wesley was a man in a time when there was no modern amplification, in a time when there was, was, was no sound systems, they'd gather in a field and there'd be tens of thousands to hear John Wesley preach. And someone asked John Wesley one time, they said, what is the secret to your ministry? How is it that you draw such great and vast numbers? And one of the most famous quotes of all time, he said this, I merely set myself afire and people come to watch me burn. What was this candlestick? Well, we're told in chapter 1 that this candlestick was the church. And the Lord says, if you don't repent, I'll come take the candlestick away. I wonder why it is we have such a struggle sometimes getting folks to accept Christ, getting them to come to church. wonder why it is that the, the ballparks will fill up by the droves even in a losing season. But even good churches with the presence of God and purity, perseverance, and with productivity, why we struggle to get folks through the door. Can I tell you why? Because if we're not going to burn, God's going to take our lamp away. God will take our candlestick away. If we're not going to be devoted, we can't expect for the world to watch and wonder. You see, the reality is you don't have to go very far to lose that drive, that passion, that burning light that God has placed within us through the Holy Spirit of God and through the testimony that we have through Christ living through us. It doesn't take much to stifle, to grieve, and to quench the work of the Holy Ghost in our lives. It doesn't take much. I wonder tonight, and I thank you so much for your patience, I wonder tonight how many of us can remember a time I wonder how many of us tonight can sit and think to ourselves, Lord, if I was to be honest, there, are some, there was a time. That time's not now, but by God's grace, I want it to be that time again.